When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, spirituality, the Bible, relationships, and I answered them with stories. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I take your questions and answer them from our tradition. I also not only do that, but I talk about the post-traumatic God, and this is one of the episodes in post-traumatic God episode number eight, where we're going to look at Paul Tillich and the trials of homecoming, something, a subject that I felt a lot of connection to in my homecoming from the Iraq war. So I invite you, I'm going to read some of the book, Post-Traumatic God, and I'm then going to comment on some of the recent updates and things that have that's happened in my world since I wrote this in 2016. This is an excerpt of Post-Traumatic God, How the Church Cares for People Who Have Been to Hell and Back from Morehouse Press, published in 2016. And I invite you to pick up a copy if you haven't already. You can do that through your local bookseller. Check it out of the library. You can also buy it on that Big River Amazon, which for you might be okay, which for others might not be okay. I certainly owe a lot of... Uh, readers to Amazon as they are the main delivery system for small-time authors like me. And so if you want to help out a small-time author, leave an Amazon review of Post Traumatic God. You can say, I listened to the podcast and and it was okay. One star. You'll see my one-star reviews on my other book, Death Letter, God, Sex, and War. First book I wrote from Tactical 16 Press a disabled veteran-owned publisher out of Colorado. And I got some one-star reviews, and that was really, really hard to take. At first, I got one on a Sunday morning, and it just, like, threw me way off. And I called one of my close friends, Dave Bottoms, who's an Army chaplain, retired now, and he kind of talked me through some of that. But that one-star review is still there, and I think the other one is still there on Amazon for Death Letter. God, Sex, and War. If you look that up, you'll see them. One uh, is really scathing, and another one just said, this guy should keep his day job, which I didn't. I left the Army and have a different day job now. But uh, but uh, one of them that was later deleted was even more scathing. But I think the person that did it um, was lying, so I guess they retracted that. I'm not sure what happened. But you'll see those one-star reviews there. There's no one-star reviews for post-traumatic God yet, and I'm thankful. But if you leave one, I'll be thankful too. If you think that's uh, how you want to rate this book, chances are I'll get a little higher than a one-star review. Oh, and I almost forgot in Death Letter, God, Sex, and War. Oh, had a little break there, got a phone call. In that first book, Death Letter, God, Sex, and War, there was a no-star review, and you can read that no-star review by Ruth Buchanan, one of my fellow camp camp counselors at High Point Camp. And it's actually one of my best reviews I've ever gotten, most thoughtful review, and it's also a no-star review. So I challenge any other author out there, I challenge them with that no-star review. It may be something 
worth attaining to. I don't know if it showed up on Amazon, but you can definitely find that no-star review on Goodreads, which is owned by Amazon. But you can read it there on Goodreads. A no-star review by Ruth Buchanan, which is actually a pretty good review of the book from my perspective. But we're here with Post Traumatic God on the Dear Padre podcast, Paul Tillich and the Trials of Homecoming. War is the foyer of hell. Coming home is hell. Tyler Boudreaux in Packing Inferno, the unmaking of a Marine. Paul Tillich's post-war, post-traumatic life was relationally tumultuous and unorthodox. The normal pre-war rules seemed to no longer apply to him. This mild-mannered boy was raised in a Germany that mirrored, in many ways, Victorian society in England with its strict moral codes and well-defined courtship rituals. When Tillich came home from the war, the world he left had changed. Germany was a defeated nation, and the old codes and morals no longer held sway, especially for the generation who fought in the war. In the environment he in this environment he became, in his own words, a wild man. When Tillich was finally discharged from the army, he returned home to discover his wife Goethe was pregnant with his friend's child. They soon divorced and Tillich was left with an apartment that was soon nicknamed the Katastrophendale, or the Disaster Bar. For the next five years, this apartment witnessed an abortion, the birth of a baby, and a brutal robbery. Soon, the apartment became a haven for struggling artists and students. During this time, Tillich experienced a multiplicity of erotic relationships that left him with, quote, manifold fears, expectations, ecstasies, and despairs. It was a time of chaos and searching. Five years after the war was over, he met Hannah Werner and married her. Paul and Hannah entered marriage with a mutual understanding theirs would be an open marriage. Both of them had multiple affairs throughout their lifelong union. Most of the information about these liaisons comes from the book Hannah published five years after Paul's death, called From Time to Time. Not only does it document her husband's numerous affairs, as well as a few of her own, it also depicts her walking into the room while he is watching pornography on a small homemade film screen. As images of naked women appear on the screen, all of them tied to crosses while being whipped by other naked women. She says, so fitting for a Christian and a theologian. As one can imagine, a torrent of magazine articles about the Tillich's unconventional marriage flashed on the national media after his death. Hannah does not only give account of his sexual issues, she also gives account of his wartime service in the book. She writes, compassion came to him during the First World War when he participated in death on the battlefield. There he experienced no hostility. He broke his nationalistic ties and became a citizen of the world. He met brothers of the mind in every country and transgressed every borderline of spirit and soul. Hannah is a poet, so she can grasp the post-traumatic God better than the theologian. Deep compassion for the world, coupled with an erosion of borders and categories, is how she described him. This movement of the spirit is deep and disturbing, especially when it crosses the borders of human sexual norms like monogamy or even exploitation. The danger of the post-traumatic God is found in this transgression of borders, just as salvation is found in tr transgressing borders. 
Jesus certainly did this, living as he was under the shadow of his own impending death. He crossed borders, geographic, cultural, and moral, to send a message to humanity about the deeper essence of God. Jungian analyst and Episcopal priest J. Pittman McGee is fond of pointing out that, quote, the sacred breaking the sacred is breaking into the profane. The sacred story of Christianity is found, McGee writes, in the invisible church, in a profane structure. Finding transcendence in imminence is a profound challenge and quest of the spiritual life. Tillich was definitely on that quest, although the quest took him to dangerous and hurtful places at times. Some of the edge of Hannah's book is blunted by Rollo May's Paulus, Tillich as a spiritual teacher. Paul, Rollo May's book followed Hannah's and served as a sort of rebuttal for her claims of infidelity. As Tillich's closest friend and one-time student, a disciple if there ever was one, Rollo May explains how Tillich loved people and was intimate with women, but rarely crossed sexual lines. Separating fact from fiction in Tillich's sex life is as difficult as separating fact from fiction in any historical character's biography. However, we can be certain his sex life was not monogamous while he was married to Hannah. In spite of numerous professional achievements, his familial relationships continued to suffer. Open marriages, after all, are hardly open from one spouse to the other. There are too many long absences and silences. I focus on Paul Tillich's sex life here because I believe his dysfunction is linked to his experience as a combat veteran. Most combat veterans have strict expectation and rituals concerning sexual relationships. When these rules are broken, a period of chaos ensues. In fact, Tillich himself linked his combat experience to the pursuit of the erotic. Writing about his wi the wild days in post-war Germany, he said, I have come to know the Boheme, or the Boheme. I went through the war. Jonathan Shea, in his Odysseus in America, provocatively writes about how soldiers, like Odysseus, are seduced, drowned, and betrayed by sirens and goddesses on their journey home from war. The combat veteran's hatred and disrespect of women is turned into patterns of infidelity and dishonesty, all of which, which were embodied in Tillich during the post-war years. Several combat chaplains I interviewed for my doctoral project spoke of their increased sexual appetite. This surprised them, especially after encountering traumatic situations involving death and dying. Procreation is, after all, the only way we can physically and practically attempt to reverse our losses and death. During one interview, these same chaplains asked the one female observer to leave the room so they could be candid about their experiences. This indicated to me the shame that comes from talking about abnormal sexual desires and fantasies. The relationship between abnormal, quote, sexual experiences and shame is a close one, and one that ministers to veterans must pay close attention to. For me, my time in Iraq disconnected me from the feminine. Even though I served with many women and was myself a non-combatant, the hyper-masculine nature of war and military service seeped into my soul. I functioned out of this energy when I returned. I was obsessed with strength and threat. I saw threats around me and attempted to be one myself at times. I was drawn to women, but I despised them as they fell from the high pedestal I had constructed for them. Carl Marlantis shows how warriors must get back in touch with their own feminine energy after war. 
He did it by drinking tea with women out of fine china while he was studying abroad. Being reunited with the feminine is the ultimate homecoming that veterans long for. Because of my shattered marriage, there was little home for me to come home to. I know from the thousands of warriors I have counseled that I am not alone in this. My relentless pursuit of sex and relationships, some of which were chronicled in my memoir, Death Letter, God, Sex, and War, were attempts to find a home. Ed Tick is more philosophical about sex by pointing out that when we call up the god of war, Ares, the goddess of lust, Aphrodite, shows up. The god of war and the goddess of lust have a way of finding each other in combat or after homecoming. The sexual relationships combat veterans have are often unorthodox or unacceptable to conventional society. Tillich's experience is congruent with the shattering of relationships and societal conventions that combat veterans experience. Tillich's experience shares some similarities with the ever-popular Christian writer C.S. Lewis. While a student at Oxford, Lewis joined the army, just as many young Oxford men did while World War I raged in Europe. He was wounded by, friendly, by a friendly artillery shell and evacuated to a hospital in the rear, then released. Sometime after his hospitalization, he began a relationship with Janie Moore. Moore was the mother of his close friend who died in the war. She was 46 and separated from her husband. Lewis was 21. So began an unconventional relationship, to say the least. He called her, quote, mother in public, even as they maintained a sexual relationship for many years. In effect, she was his common-law wife for more than 30 years. As he approached middle age and she her elderly years, the relationship changed. She, she, uh, she suffered from dementia and was often hostile to him. He visited her every day until the day she died. I share this here because Lewis never talked or wrote about two things, trench warfare in World War I or his intimate and loving relationship with Janie Moore. One can hardly blame him for his silence about either. His short, extremely shallow treatment of both subjects in his autobiography, written four years after Moore's death, makes his readers poorer for it. His only writing about the war is his poetry, published in his first and only book of poetry. One of his haunting lines about the trenches shows the reader who he had become. What call have I to dream of anything? I am a wolf, back to the world again, and speech of fellow brutes that once were men. Our throats can bark for slaughter, cannot sing. A few years after my time in Iraq, I sat anxiously in a waiting room of the social work department of Walter Reed. I was about to attend a session with a licensed counselor. I'd been in plenty of counseling sessions, but this time I was the client, the patient. This time it was for me. I wondered if one of my colleagues or superiors would walk in and see me reading a magazine. The reason for my presence, all too obvious. Finally, I was called into one of the offices. The social worker asked me the dozen intakes questions. I told her I'd been having anxiety and sadness since my divorce. What happened? She asked. I said my wife cheated on me and we divorced. How long ago? I thought back to the hazy past. I knew it had been over a year, but normal time was not working for me anymore. I was jumping around in time, it seemed. I was an adolescent one minute, an old man the next. 
I could see the moment of my birth and I could feel the coffin lid close over me. I was surviving. Life was surreal, a common expression for the traumatized. I never could be fully present for anything during those days. I was like a shark, always fidgeting, always on the move. The survival energy I developed in Iraq had not left me. I was the predator and the prey. I was always hunting, always the hunted. How long ago was your divorce? She asked again. Eleven months, I said, snapping out of time travel. She probed more. Why did you divorce again? Oh, yeah, she had a boyfriend when I got back from Iraq in 06. I didn't tell her about what I had done and what I had left undone. I didn't say how numb I was when I got home. I didn't mention how self-obsessed I was with my own success as an army chaplain. I didn't tell her how little respect I showed my ex-wife. So you were cuckolded, the social worker said. I can see how that would be hard to take. I had heard that word before, but never applied it to me. Yeah, I was, I guess, was my feeble reply. It is hard to take on a label in life. This was the first of many I would end up with. They were very difficult at first, but grow easier with time. I never wanted to be divorced. I never wanted to be a veteran either. I never wanted to be defined by something in my past, but that is why I kept all the rules. I certainly could not. I certainly did not want to be a cuckold. A cuckold is a man whose wife is cheating on him. Some of them know how it hap- know it is happening. Some do not. It's an old term, just as it is, just just as it is an old situation. It goes back all the way back to the Roman legionnaires. They would march back into town, bedecked with horned helmets given to them for success in battle. After years of being away, they would often discover their wives and lovers had been unfaithful. The horns of success became symbols of failure and fidelity. Being good at fighting does not equal success in relationships. It's an old problem. It is not just Paul Tillich and myself that bear this name. Sometimes men do the cheating. I have heard their confessions, the admission of guilt. After hearing many of these, I can confidently say I would rather be the one cheated upon than the one doing the cheating. Cuckolds only have to lie to themselves, never to their spouse. And there is some comfort in this. Military chaplains, just like other veterans, experience all the shattering and disconnecting effects of war. War shatters their connection to their pre-traumatic identity. This can be alarming for a group of clergy who pride themselves in our ability to cultivate relationships. One of the earliest honest accounts of a chaplain's difficulty home from war is Roger Beminoff's Faith Under Fire, an army chaplain's memoir. Beminoff's experience with PTSD prompted him to pen in his journal, I am angry at God for putting me in a helpless situation. Later in the account, he writes about his estrangements from his wife that almost results in divorce. He says, I still believed in God, but not necessarily a compassionate one. His own son once asked his mother, Is that why Daddy doesn't care about us anymore? I'm thankful Beminoff was brave enough to tell us his story of his problems with God. His problems with God center around God's compassion. For some, the post-traumatic God is not compassionate. If God were compassionate, then God would have done something about the suffering I witnessed. Civilians can believe in a compassionate God from the safety of their suburbs and apartments. But those who have witnessed the indifference of war know that God is not just a big bubbling fountain of melted chocolate. God is not a big muffin in the sky. 
from whom we all can take a bite or not. No, the God often revealed in war is cruel, vengeful, killing the good and the young, and leaving the corrupt and the evil to flourish. It is the deepest and most personal of all theological questions. It is the subject of books, songs, psalms, and groans in the night. A Vietnam veteran shared in one of our Episcopal Veterans Fellowship meetings that he had put a he had, quote, put God on the shelf during Vietnam. Stories of God's disappearance in war abound. God went AWOL, absent without leave over there. I had feelings after Iraq. I had those feelings after Iraq. God was supposed to send me to Iraq to have great success. I would serve the troops, preach great sermons, and counsel troubled souls. I would return to great fanfare and love. I would move on with my life and live a life of happiness and wedded bliss. None of this happened. I was an anxiety-ridden, angry, flighty, depressed, and alcoholic-dependent man. I was not able to enjoy anything, even time with my two sons. I was obsessed with my own safety, and a string of ex-girlfriends proved, uh, proved my lack of commitment. All I could think of was myself, in a primitive egocentrism. I was filled with shame over my divorce and avoided married people. I didn't trust anyone unless they served with me in Iraq. I pushed friends and family away, and I was angry at God. War is the father of all, said the 5th century BCE philosopher Heraclitus. I participated in war, and the war participated in me. War became my father, not God. War offered me a chance to become a man, to grow up, to make my mark on the world. The god of war traditionally the Roman Mars, equivalent to the Greek Ares, is showy, fickle, and rash. I was more like him than I knew. We live and move in our mythology, and I was deep in this one. It was during these days that I discovered Paul Tillich. I do not know how I stumbled upon the hidden, to me at least, historical fact that he was an army chaplain in World War I. I read his theology and found a post-traumatic God I could believe in at the time. There are three major themes in Paul Tillich's thought that helped me during those days. I believe these three concepts can help post-traumatic pilgrims, veterans who have been to hell and back, because they were developed by a theologian whose theology was, according to his own words, quote, completed, unquote, by his combat experience. Tillich's three theological themes are the courage to be, the new being, and God as the ground of being. You know, I think back on this chapter and my dissertation research on Paul Tillich and uh, the fact that there's so much more to write about him and his biography and his life with Hannah, which I will touch on further in the story. Uh, it's kind of overwhelming because I think that this is the part of Tillich's life, his dysfunction in relationships, his inability um, in so many years to get a good report card from his wife, uh, which I think is pretty critical in life. If, if, um, if when you die, your wife writes a book, um, you know, you kind of want it to be something that um, you wouldn't be ashamed to read. But the fact that um, she wrote this book is a puzzle to many, it includes a lot of her own poetry, and I encourage you to read it. Um, it's in a lot of theological libraries, at least. Um, it was dropped like a bombshell in 1965 
or 67 when it, or whenever year it came out after his death. But uh, this part of his life, this dysfunction post-war, um, there's this one scene in her story where she meets Tillich for the first time, where Hannah meets Tillich, and she's 10 years younger than him. And it's right after World War One. It's just a few few years after his divorce, a few years after World War One's over. And he's uh, struggling, trying to get a job in, in Berlin. And I believe the scene is she, he's walking down a stairs when she first sees him, and he's so, so skinny. And that's the first thing she describes him as. And I think that um, you can almost recognize people who have been on a deployment in, in a couple ways, that they're, they're – appearance changes for a lot of people, not only facial expressions, but even their body composition, either a serious weight gain or serious weight loss for a lot of um, a lot of us. I know I lost a ton of weight in the months after Iraq without even really knowing what was happening. I was just nauseous all the time. This anxiety was just literally eating at me. And I, I remember going and um, to Whataburger with a friend of mine and, and eating like a half of the junior burger, which it was a junior burger. I could only like stomach half of it. Uh, now I love to eat everything. Uh, if you put any food, pretty much any food on the planet in front of me, um, I'm going to really enjoy it. And uh, so my quest now is to sort of eat more healthy and do all that stuff that all of us Americans are doing to, to feel good about ourselves and our image and all those things, which uh, would be a great subject for another podcast. But this this emaciating effect of World War One on Paul Tillich, and certainly there was a lot of shortages after the war in Berlin, um, and a lot of other struggles in their society. But the fact that this is the first thing she notices about him has always kind of left me wondering about their relationship in that way, and 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 the way she saw him from that first moment, and the way they saw each other throughout the years. But. Paul Tillich's sex life and his his pornography and his infidelity and Hannah's infidelity and their willingness to, to somewhat embrace that when they first got married, um, I think points to a um, a sort of restlessness in them. And, and I'm not trying to judge people by not adhering to, to certain um, cultural Victorian norms for, for human relationships or anything in the Dear Padre podcast. Um, is not trying to um, to create some kind of case for um, Victorian morality. But the fact that that was sort of the first thing to go, um, I found that theme in so many veteran stories, and even in my own, that that belief that, that had been drilled into us and reinforced by, by the military in so many ways, even though the military is seen as a very licentious and hedonistic place when it comes to sexuality, that you know, the soldiers are going to go out and just wreak havoc on the town and all these sorts of other things. And I certainly experienced that as an enlisted Marine and, and, and in the Army as well. But there was an underlying morality. Uh, for instance, in the Army and in all the military services in the United States, adultery is still a felony charge, a felony. So this overarching morality of fidelity, monogamy, um, sort of gets turned upside down for many veterans. And again, relationships are often the barometer by which we can judge our emotional and spiritual health. If we have inability in forming relationships with other people, um, it's a really good sign that there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, internal disturbance in our lives. And uh, most of us don't really go to counseling. 
um, unless something is dysfunctional in a relationship at work or a relationship at home or a relationship in the world. When relationships in, at work and at home are kind of running along smoothly, uh, we rarely need help. It's like the old carpet theory of change, you know, how many pieces of duct tape have to go on the carpet before we say it's time for a new carpet or I need to really make a serious repair. Most of us are willing to duct tape things far too long. And one of the things I try to do in premarital conversations that we have is to encourage people to seek out marital counseling and relationship counseling long before um, long before things get to the point where that seems to be the only solution. Uh, I really appreciate some of the other writers on this, especially C.S. Lewis. I mean, discovering that about Lewis and his relationship and his own um, his own sexual um, thoughts and feelings that he does write about some of them um, and being assaulted as a child and um, his relationship with Janie Moore, but they never directly referencing it. I, f- I found this in so many memoirs of war and homecoming, this inability to talk about a huge number of subjects. And one of the reasons I wrote Death Letter, that first book, was to kind of put my put it out there for the community and say, this is one snapshot of one person's life, but I know enough about my community to know that this is not just my story. It's a bigger story. And the people that have read that book and resonated with it are people that had often had experiences that are similar or they loved people that had similar experiences or they just observed it in real life. And I think that's hopefully true of post-traumatic God. The people that have told me about it resonating with them are people that have experienced this kind of turmoil and trauma. Uh, I hope I um, convinced you of seeking therapy. If you are a listener and you are thinking about um, your own relationships with people and your own experience with war, I think every American right now is part of these wars that we have been that have been going on for now a generation in this one very focused way all of us are in on it if you don't think that war affects every area of our life think again i really think the 2016 election was just a real sign of how war has affected all of us in that we feel like we're at war with our fellow americans and i believe that the destabilization in the world because of our wars, has now finally uh, come home to us in 2016 and still seems to be very present. Um, I do think that there is a link between these things. I don't know if anything's been written about that. And it's sort of impossible to prove those sort of very big picture things. Maybe historians will examine this many years later, but it's it's something I feel all the time. And it's something I feel like I don't want to be part of a war anymore. Wars are fought in a lot of different ways, and I don't want to be part of that. I want to be a person of peace, a person of goodwill, a person that can, uh, through God's grace, transcend some of those, some of the gutters that that we naturally fall into based on our traumatic experiences. Uh, as we are in Holy Week this week, I invite you into the trauma of Holy Week to consider how traumatized the people that are recording these stories that have been handed down for 2,000 years were and are, that the trauma that Jesus experienced on the cross was witnessed by his closest and most intimate friends and family, that they experienced this trauma and it changed the way they saw everything. You can see it in the story 
of Peter, in the story of Mary, his mother, in the story of Jesus himself and the other disciples, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary that comes to the tomb. You can see this in the way they describe their experience with Jesus after the crucifixion. And I think that offers profound uh, resonance. We'll, we'll address that in future chapters, how the New Testament is a book written by traumatized people uh, re- reflecting on their own traumatic experience with the crucifixion and resurrection, because that's kind of traumatic too in its own way. I dare say that while we often imagine we would be happy to see someone come back from the dead that we saw die, I'm not sure it would be just a smooth sailing experience for our psyches, for the part of our brain that tells us whether we're safe or not. I think that would be a very unsettling experience. Um, And we are witness to that. We are part of this post-traumatic community as Easter people in the Christian church. And I'm excited to be part of that community because it's a community that understands that there is deep trauma in the world that this deep trauma affects every single area of our lives and that this that this deep trauma in the world is known by God, that the God of the universe knows this trauma in a deep and intimate way through the experience of God's Son on the cross. And that helps me feel that I'm not alone. Uh, I'm not sure I can face all the trials in the future of my life very bravely, That's the big question in deployment. Will you have what it takes when the deal goes down? Will you have what it takes when it seems like nothing, there's no hope? And we all wonder, will we be able to do our job when the shit hits the fan, when all comes undone, when Murphy's Law of War explodes on us? And that's the big question. Will we have what it takes in those critical moments? And the question is not always answered by, Yes, I feel like I will, or or maybe I won't. But it's really about who will be there with us. Will you be there with me when the shit hits the fan? Will you be there with me when all is lost? And knowing that someone will be with us changes that whole experience from an experience of profound isolation and terror and loneliness to an experience of close close intimacy, intimacy that we rarely can experience in any other situation. So I invite you into that experience of Holy Week and Easter this year.